will be here tomorrow. Well, this is a special day. That's why we're here today. This is a good Friday. <laughs> Not like the Catholics do in the springtime, but truly a good Friday this year as Feast of Trumpets happens to fall on it. That's the good news. And now, tonight begins the fast of the seventh month. I say Sunday, but it's actually Saturday night. Huh? No, I, no I, I'm sorry, we have two Sabbaths and then... Yeah, it's tomorrow night. I'm already confused with two Sabbaths and then a fast after it. <clears throat> Sunday night. I was thinking Sunday and I, then I thought, well, that's tonight. No, it's not. This is just Friday still. But it seems like a Sabbath, so we'll celebrate it as one since we're going to go to Leviticus 23 now and see that we should be. It is interesting that he spends quite a little time in this chapter describing unleavened bread, describing Pentecost, uh, and Feast of a Day of Atonement. But he has very little to say about the Feast of Trumpets. It's down in verse 24. It's only two verses. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So, it's a memorial day. In memorial to, or memorial of, something that's coming. And it's a Sabbath and a holy convocation, which means a commanded assembly. So this day is a very, very important day in the plan of God. He says, You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. Servile work means your normal activities. He does say of the holy days except atonement that there's no work except the preparation of food. So it's okay to prepare food even on the Day of Trumpets. You don't normally on the weekly Sabbath because Friday is set up as a preparation day and any heavy cooking should certainly be done on Friday, not on the Sabbath. Uh, we should have a minimum of that kind of thing uh, on Sabbath I don't think it's wrong to turn on the microwave or maybe to uh, fry an egg or something on on the Sabbath. But any kind of heavy cooking or baking and so on should always be done ahead of time, particularly on Friday, and then can be warmed up. So, But on the holy days, it's a special time. Now, it's interesting that the Jews are not keeping trumpets today. They're doing it tomorrow. There's nothing in the Scripture that says they can do that because it's the second day of the month, not the first day of the month. The new moon determines the first day of the month. And if you have a back-to-back -back Sabbath, they can't handle that. So they postpone it a day. And sometimes two or even three days if it doesn't hit the way they want. So they don't go by what God says in the heavens. They go by their traditions. And Christ told them what, they thought, what he thought of their traditions way back then. So this is a day of blowing of trumpets. I have one here, and all I need now is a blowhard, <laughs> if, uh, if any measures up. I, there was one model of something like this that I could blow and kind of make a belching noise. It wasn't much of a trumpet sound. But this one, all I can get is air blowing out the end. I don't know how to purse my lips or can't blow hard enough or I don't know just what. Oh, I know. It's the design of the horn. It's The horn's bad. It can't be me. But in any case, uh, I put it out here in Shofar So Good. Uh, the day of trumpets. So 
Vern gave that to me some years ago as a, a gift for the Peace of the Trumpets, so I thought I'd stick it out here uh, as a remembrance. But notice here what it said. It's a blowing of trumpets. Not just one, but trumpets. And it doesn't say much about the Feast of Trumpets, but we have other scriptures which give us a great deal uh, more detail about what this day is about. And really, when it says trumpets, I think that there's a, an end-time application for certain there of the seven trumps of the book of Revelation. Those are all end-time events and end-time trumpets. And here, in Leviticus 23, we have all of God's holy days laid out because they show His plan for mankind, His purpose. And I'll briefly review that so we have it strongly in mind as I make this comment about these being, uh, these trumpets having to do with prophecy later on. And you know all this, but... Uh, Passover, of course, uh, begins the plan of salvation because without Christ's sacrifice on the first day of unleavened bread, uh, there would be no salvation. Uh, it is only through Him that salvation comes, and by no other name under heaven can this be accomplished. So, the beginning of the plan of salvation begins with Him. And that's why the first day is such an important day, because virtually everything uh, that needed to be done was done by Him. Now, we have six more days following that first day, which is itself a feast and a memorial, uh, which picture us doing our part of putting whatever sin remains out of our lives, because overcoming and growing is what... Christ told us in the New Testament that we must continue to do. And overcoming and growing means what? It means putting sin out because what do you overcome? What do you grow in? You grow in overcoming sin and having less sin in your life. That's what it's all about. And we all have it and we all have to work on it. So those six days are there for us. Just as he told us at creation, six days are for man, but the seventh day is a holy day for God, for us to remember God and to worship God and to be reminded every week of his plan of salvation. Because if there's no salvation, if there's no life after this one, what's the point? We might as well eat, drink, and be merry and do what we want and have fun till we die because there's nothing more. But since there is something more, we have a job to do, and that is to become more like the Father and the Son, who are without sin. Uh, but we are subject to it, through Satan's temptation and our own human nature, which is bad enough in itself. So, he made the process available by providing forgiveness for sin, and then told us, quit it. <laughs> Don't do it anymore. Work on it. Get rid of it. Then Pentecost comes, and it is uh, symptom, not symptomatic. It is uh, significant for several reasons. It is the engagement of Christ to his bride. Is it is also, uh, by giving of the Holy Spirit, a picture of baptism or a conception toward a new life. And that new life is becoming the bride of Christ in his kingdom. So Pentecost is very, very important from those standpoints. It's the beginning of our true spiritual life through the importation of his spirit, which he gave in Acts 2 in a very dramatic way and gives to us in a less dramatic way when we repent and are baptized and have the laying on of hands, uh, picturing conception. So it's both a conception and an engagement rolled into one. It's, it's a beginning of our walk with Christ toward becoming his bride.
Then you have Feast of Trumpets in the fall after a long hot summer. Uh, Christ told his disciples, his apostles, that I'm going to leave you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to be gone. And you'll fast while I'm gone because I'm not here. When I come back, you won't need to fast anymore because I'll be with you. But while I'm gone, you mourn that I'm gone. You long for the day I return. Just as humans, when they get engaged to be married, they want to be together all the time. They mourn when they're apart. And now they text and call and everything to stay in touch minute by minute. Got to be there all the time with them, somehow. Uh, And he's gone for a period of time here. It's been nearly 2,000 years that he's been gone. So we are anticipating his return in glory and power uh, at Feast of Trumpets. And we'll see that as we go along through here. But I want to concentrate more today on the events leading up to that, because Trumpets is talking about, among other things, the seven. Now, a trumpet was used in ancient Israel primarily as a warning, uh, as a call to gather together for something very important, and that importance could be the attack of enemies. Uh, Man yourselves. Grab your shields and your swords and your bows and get ready. So a trumpet was given as a call to arms. And these trumpets, as we shall see, are a call to arms. He tells us in Joel to blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, because these things are coming and they're going to be drastic and dire. So Joel is a picture of the end time and how we need to be warned ahead of time so that we can be prepared and ready when the things that are coming hit. And, as you know, today, they have started hitting. They're coming now in waves. And it's just going to get worse and worse as time goes on here. There's not a whole lot of time left, and we'd better be like the seven virgins there in Matthew 25, getting oil in our lamps and being ready because the lights are going to go out. And if we don't have oil to light our way, we don't have God's Spirit to lead us, to guide us and keep us on the path, we're going to be in trouble. Because the rest of the world, speaking of the Christian world even, will not have light. They will not know which way to go. They won't know where to turn. Pretty soon the mark of the beast is going to be instituted, probably in the form of a vaccine. In your hand, I don't know about the forehead, I don't know exactly how they're going to do it, or exactly when, or whether it's the first vaccine, or the second, or the third, or just how, but I don't think they're going to need all your personal information. How are they going to interview everybody on earth and get all their personal information to put in that chip? I don't think they'll need to. Every one of those vaccines has a chip in it, probably. And it'll have a number in there. And once it's implanted in you, whether it's in a traffic stop or at school or wherever it's implanted, it'll have a number. And that'll be you from then on. You don't, they don't need to know your name. They don't need to know when you were born. They don't need to have all that information. All they need is to know what the number is that's in your hand or your forehead. And with that, you can buy and sell, and under form of communism, they can recharge that chip every month with a certain amount of money so you can buy and sell. And if you don't have it, you can't buy and sell. So this thing is right at the door that is coming. It's right at the door. They're working on a vaccine right now. I suspect they already have it made and they've got all this foo-for-rah in the air about having a vaccine for COVID. But this is probably already designed and ready to go. And when it's time to institute it, they'll start vaccinating everybody on earth to give them the mark of the beast. They've covered it in a medical uh, 
shroud in order to keep people from knowing what it is really that they're getting. Coming soon to a traffic stop near you or where your kids are going to school or whatever. It's coming. Let's go to briefly to Matthew 24 and a quick view of what Christ says here although we're quite familiar with it, he says, what will be the sign of the end? Is what the disciples asked. So, that's in verse 3, what's the sign of your coming and the end of the world? So, what are we looking for when the end of the age, the end of this world is near? He says, take heed that no man deceive you. There will come many saying, I am Christ, and deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, we've been hearing of wars and rumors of wars quite some time now. All kinds of wars. There's one right now just about to start happening between China and India, one between Turkey and Greece, and maybe Iran, and with China and Taiwan, and we're rumored to have wars everywhere, (laughs) Uh, but they're all over the world, here, there, and everywhere. And we've seen that now for quite some time, but the end has not come. Then, he says, for nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, not just rumors of war now, but actual combat. They'll rise against one another. When you rise, that means you have your weapons on and you stand up to go to war. That's when you rise. So there'll be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places, diverse or strange places maybe even. So war will come and famine and pestilence. And if you're keeping up with the news... Uh, We have crop failures all over the world. We have locusts eating them. We have terrible floods in China that are destroying crops. Our Midwest has had terrible floods and drought. And we have a severe drought in the West. And we also have incredible fires in California and Oregon, which are destroying a great deal of the harvest. This is going on even as we sit here today. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Famine, pestilence, and earthquakes. Earthquakes are on the rise as well. More and more of them around the ring of fire and here, there, and everywhere. So, it's increasing. You hardly even hear about a hurricane now that hits. We just had one come across Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and I didn't see much about it. Of course, I don't watch the mainstream news much, if at all. But... uh, it wasn't that big a deal in some ways because you got all these fires going and you have all these protests and we have elections coming up. So you can have things that cause damage to millions of people and hundreds of thousands without electricity, some dying, and very little is mentioned about it because, hey, we got something more important going on. We got an Alzheimer patient running against a, uh, an elite power broker uh, for President of the United States. So, these things are coming upon us, and some of them are sort of sneaking in almost unawares. But we need to be aware, and we need to see them happening just as Christ said they would. Now, these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, there is a timeline in the book of Revelation about what we're reading here. And that's why I'm reading it, because we're going to go there here in a minute. Then shall I deliver you up to be afflicted. Now, this is not just so-called Christians, because they are not worshipers of Christ anyway. They don't know Him. They don't keep His commandments. And they are not Christians, because they don't keep His commandments. They worship, they know not what. So it's not against them this is talking about. And there is persecution of so-called Christians right now in this nation. You can have a casino open. You can have a bar open. 
But you can't have a church open in a lot of places. So that uh, persecution is already coming down on the so-called Christian world. But this is talking about a time when it comes down on those called of God, church people. Does that include you and me? It could. It could. He does say that there will be a certain percentage, ten, that we will be protected from all this, and Satan will come after them, but it won't work. So he goes after the remnant of her seed, the 90% that are not called to come finish the work and build a temple. Those are the ones this is talking about. 90% of those who were in the church will be killed, and they'll think they do it in the name of God or Christ. says that in Revelation, I mean in Daniel 11 as well. Now they'll take you up and kill you. And many of the light will fall, it says there. So he's talking to true disciples here in the context. So it's the true disciples he's speaking about that will be persecuted once famine, pestilence, and earthquake are already here, already going. May not have stopped, will still be going, but those things happen ahead of that. There's a specific moment when those who are truly in the church will be attacked. It's in Revelation 12. We might get there and we might not. Many false prophets will arise and deceive many, and lawlessness, sin, iniquity will abound, and the love of many shall wax cold. But you've got to endure to the end, and those will be the ones that are saved, who continue to obey God, in spite of the beast, who will come and try to take everyone away from God. Now let's go to Revelation. Uh, chapter 1 talks about Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel himself, and his power and greatness. And then it gets into the message to the churches, who are all extant, the attitudes thereof, here at the end time, and are dealt with, and they're all told to overcome in chapters 2 and 3, and we're quite familiar, I don't, that isn't the emphasis for today, I want to get on to the meaning of this day more. And in chapter 4, <clears throat> it gives a, a picture of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, about him, his throne, about the 24 elders that sit there and the lamps of fire, and the sea of glass, like crystal, as you go down through that chapter. And then these four elders, and give somewhat of a description of them, the 24 elders, uh, who fall and worship him in verse 10. And they say, You are worthy, O Eternal, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they are and were created. Now, you look at the creation around us, and we find it very pleasurable and enjoyable. I sat out this morning and enjoyed the hummingbirds and other birdies and the trees and the grass and the flowers in my yard. And it was wonderful to just sit and enjoy God's creation and to grasp that this was all created for His pleasure. Now, let's not lose in that in looking at the creation, which is such a wonderful thing, but we're part of it. And therefore, being part of that creation, and the most significant part of it, if you go back and read it, is us. We were created for His pleasure. Now, a lot of hard-shell Baptists and various other groups will tell you that He hates us, and He's angry, and He's going to destroy us all, we're all going to hell. That's weird. They're teaching he's going to come and take us to heaven, but then they preach to us that we're all going to hell. That's totally out of sync. No, we're created for his pleasure. 
He delights in his creation. Now you look at mankind around this world and all the hurt and sorrow and anger and misery and killing and everything that's going on and you think, how could he take pleasure in this? Well, that part of it he doesn't. That part of it has to go away. And people who are living that way are very soon going to go away. But his pleasure is in the purpose and plan for which he created us. And that is to become eternal beings in his kingdom who don't sin anymore and who don't want to sin anymore. And he takes pleasure in our ultimate purpose and what he is going to create in us. We're not very pleasurable to look at today. I'm sorry, we're just not. I mean, I looked in the mirror. I didn't take much pleasure in that. In fact, it's kind of scary and discouraging and frustrating to look in a mirror. Now, when I was 17, I thought it was pretty neat, but that's changed somehow. So we're, whether you look at us physically or whether you look at us spiritually, we're not much. But he's going to make much of us. When you become the bride of Christ, which is pictured by Pentecost on atonement, after having been resurrected at trumpets, you're going to be a whole lot different than you are today, and you'll be something that he could really take true pleasure in. Because the bride will be like he is. In composition, in looks, in actions, in thoughts, we'll be just like him. That's what he takes pleasure in, is in our potential. I built several houses in my life. And when I took out an envelope and drew up my blueprint on the back of it, I took pleasure in what I could see in my mind, because what I drew on the paper was probably freehand without a ruler, my dad and I would sit down and we'd design a house that way. And then we'd start building it because we had a picture of what it would be. Now, I didn't take a lot of pleasure in the drawing. I didn't take a lot of pleasure in digging the ditches and pouring the concrete and finishing it, for sure. I didn't take pleasure in putting the insulation in. But I took pleasure in what I had in my mind that I was producing. And I didn't take pictures of the day we put insulation in. I took pictures when the product was finished. Because it was a dream. Brought to fruition. We aren't much now. In fact, we are nothing, right? Nothing. It's what we shall be that he takes pleasure in. Because that will be a finished product that is worthwhile. And he then extends it to the first fruits, the 144,000 at trumpets, who marry him on Day of Atonement on the Sea of Glass. And then, after the seven last plagues, he comes back, puts down all opposition that remains, and sets up his kingdom which is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles, a thousand years of peace under him and the Father, who will be here as well. And it will be unlike the short New World Order that the beasts and the false prophet have. They think they're going to continue forever. They last about three and a half years, and that's it. The times of the Gentiles is 42 months, and then it's over. No more. His continues. So, the Feast of Trumpets falls after the engagement, after the conception and engagement period in the long hot summer, waiting. He returns at trumpets and transforms people into God, as we shall see. 
and the mystery of God is revealed at that time. And then he can truly take pleasure and look at his bride and say, perfect. She's just perfect. Now when we get married, we'd like to think he's just perfect or she's just perfect. And it doesn't make any difference what your parents say, what your friends say, or anybody else, because to you, he or she is perfect. Until shortly after the honeymoon, and reality begins to dawn slowly. And then you realize neither one of you are perfect, and we got work to do here to make this thing even work. To make it even work. Because neither of us is perfect. But when we are changed, perfection will be there. And then, after the marriage and the honeymoon for a year at his throne, and come back to rule, it'll still be perfect. And it will remain that way forevermore. With us, it's a dream and an illusion as humans. But in, when reality strikes, kind of goes away. You can still love each other and you can still get along and things can work pretty good and you can live together in whatever degree of peace and harmony the two of you can muster. But that's as good as it gets. There was a movie about that with a few some years back. As good as it gets about this guy who was oh what what's uh, OCDC or whatever it's called and so on and then there was this waitress and they got together and then they kind of didn't and then they finally got together because they figured this is as good as it gets. It wasn't much but it was as good as it got. And that was the basis of the movie. <laughs> and with us we still have something to look forward to that we can't even comprehend because we haven't experienced it in physical marriage. We've experienced a certain amount of it. And he tells us our marriages are supposed to reflect what is to come, but it is a shadowy type. It can only go so far because we as humans are so limited. So you have to expect less than perfection, and you have to learn to live with less than perfection, because you won't find it. It varies in rate of success from couple to couple. Some don't find much happiness at all and they're divorced within a year or two. Some make it through 50, 60 years and did pretty well. Pretty well. But none achieved what that goal is that we are reaching and searching for and that Christ takes pleasure in once it is accomplished. So, that's his plan, to make us into perfection. And we were created for his pleasure. Now, in chapter 5 here in Revelation, I saw the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. So here's a book that's got seven seals on it, like seven pieces of scotch tape, if you will. It's sealed and it can't be opened. A strong angel came and said, Who's worthy to open the book? Now, this is a strong angel of God. And he can't do it, so he says, Who can? The angels of God have a great deal of power, but not this much. No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So nobody in heaven, the righteous... Nobody on earth, mankind, and maybe it's even a reference to the demons under the earth who go in the earth. Nobody could do it. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read it and to look on it even. And one of the elders, that's one of those elders, 24 elders sitting before the throne of God is who it's referring to, said to me, Weep not. Quit your mourning. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. 
And I looked, and there was the, in the midst of the throne, and the, the four beasts, and in the midst of the twenty-four elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So here's a picture of the throne and these seven angels that are being sent to do something, standing with Christ. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. Now that's an interesting thing. You have this heavenly picture. You have the twenty-four elders, the four beasts. You have the angels of God all around. And you have this book that nobody can open. And it comes to Christ himself. And he's the only one who has power to open it. Whatever's in there, he's the only one that can do it. And he has to do it when he's good and ready to do it. Because nobody else can. But notice that. Where was it here? End of verse 8. They fell and worshipped with harps and golden vials full of incense, my margin says, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So, involved in the opening of the seven seals, which we're going to see are there, or just read about, and what they contain are the prayers of the saints the incense that goes up to God. So this is being done for the saints. And within this song, remember he tells us there in Revelation 2 or 3 somewhere, that they'll sing a new song and only the 144,000 can sing it. I think that's in Revelation 7 as well, about the 144,000. Only they can sing it. So them singing that in the future. They they aren't resurrected here. But most of them are still dead and some are alive. But God has been keeping all these prayers, storing them up, because they came up as incense to Him. The prayers of the saints have an awful lot to do with what's occurring right here. Your prayers are important. They're very important. They need to be included in what is being said right here. Because you're some of the saints of God. Let me emphasize that to you a little bit. Let's go back for a moment to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. Now, this context from chapter 40 on through 47, and actually on through the end of the book, are about the end time work after worldwide. The beginning of the two witnesses and those who are with them as Witnesses of God, as he tells us in chapter 43, you are my witnesses, verse 12. You are my witnesses, verse 10. Several times it mentions it. Not just two, but the whole group. Now, he says here as he goes on down, verse 14, Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer. Christ is our Redeemer, our Savior. The Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. Whose cry is in the ships? Revelation 18. They're wailing and weeping because their ships can't do trading with America anymore. The market is gone. 
I just heard recently that they have pulled all railroad equipment out of California, Oregon, and Washington. The railroads will not be servicing the West Coast and imports, apparently, anymore. I heard that, or read it on the Internet, and then I heard it confirmed by someone who is works with the Coast Guard and works with those ports, and he said, it's all being pulled out. That's just this week. Do you realize what an incredible thing that will have effect on the economy of this nation? The one who confirmed this said, we have to have potash imported to make glass, automobile glass, all kinds of glass. Without potash, they can't make it. You break your windshield, it won't be able to be replaced. And he said it takes 100, so he knows what he's talking about. He said it takes 110 truckloads to carry what one long freight car will carry. And not only that, they got to bag it. So 110 truckloads of bagged potash to take the place of one freight car. There aren't that many trucks around. Period. And a freight train can be a mile, mile and a half long, full of potash or whatever else, coal, whatever it might be. It's shutting down our ports, basically. Everything that can come in, at least now, will have to come by truck only, not, not railroad. Incredible financial disaster awaits that. And what it says here about those in the ships crying just like Revelation 18 says. So Isaiah is fulfilled in Revelation 18, and we see it happening before our very eyes. Those ships out there won't be able to unload in boxcars, apparently, anymore. Tremendous economic thing. But notice this. For your sake, verse 14... He is destroying Babylon for His people's sake, those who will follow and obey Him, and no one else. Nearly everyone else is going to be killed. He's doing it for the sake of those who will obey Him. He says, I am the Eternal, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. He says, verse 18, Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Don't worry about the past. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? Uh, I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. You wonder why he took us out of Oregon and Florida and Ohio and wherever else and brought us out here to the desert? Well, here you have it. That's where it's going to occur. Isaiah 35. The deserts will bloom as a wilderness. And notice he says, The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. <coughs> So he's doing it for the sake of his people, but the birds of the air and the beasts are going to honor him. Man, they're going to say, what happened out here? I used to have to travel six miles to get a drink of water, and now it's everywhere. Whee! But let's read on. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. He created them for His pleasure, we read. Okay? But here's a problem, verse 22. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. Sounds like Revelation 3 in the Laodicean church. Eh, it's okay, we'll get by, don't need to do this. Weary of prayer. Weary of seeking God. Thinking we're okay and being self-righteous. Ooh. 
But notice what we failed at, verse 23. You have not brought me the small cattle of your burnt offerings, neither have you honored me with your sacrifices. Our sacrifice is a contrite spirit and the giving of our lives. Romans. A living sacrifice, not a dead one. We don't bring turtle doves and cows. We present ourselves as a sacrifice to Him in the service of others. That's what we're called on to do. And if we are not serving others and giving and helping, then we're not bringing that offering to God. Because He looks upon all that service to others as an offering to Him. That's what a living sacrifice does. It sacrifices its time and its energy for the benefit of others. And that is to God a sweet smell. I have not caused you to serve me with an offering, uh, nor wearied you with incense. It says in Jeremiah 7.22, when he brought them out of Egypt, he didn't speak of burnt offerings and incense and all that thing, kind of thing. He added it later because of transgression, because they wouldn't honor Him and love Him and obey Him. So He put the sacrificial system on them. And then He removed that when Christ became the sacrifice, and when we, as being like Christ, also sacrifice ourselves for others as He did for us. So we're to follow in his steps and walk as he walked and help and serve one another. That's the kind of works we do. And then we have to guard against getting self-righteous and bragging about it and letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing and everyone within hearing as well. Because it's something that's done selflessly and not looking for a claim or a praise or a pat on the back. It's done truly for the sake of others whom we love as ourselves. But the part I wanted to get to here was I didn't weary you with incense, but he says, You've bought me no sweet cane with money, neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have made me to serve with your sins, and you've wearied me with your iniquities. Instead of prayer to, obedience to, he's sitting here having to deal with our sins and our iniquities and our bad attitudes. He says, I'm doing all this for you. I'm going to make the desert bloom as a wilderness for you. Now, are you going to do your part? We've got to do our part. That's what the six days of unleavened bread after Christ did most of it as far as that we do our part. I, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. For his own sake. Because he takes pleasure in his creation. He wants us to be a perfect creation when it is all said and done. Now, you're created, aren't you? You have life. And you can create children through the process God has made. But you're not a finished creation. If this is the finish, if this is the end, it ain't much of a creation. And He made us in this physical life to begin to deteriorate, to begin to get old, and our bodies begin to shrivel and wrinkle up and get uglier as time goes on, and our brains do the same thing, and we begin to say, oh, I don't remember, I can't remember. What did I come in this room for? And it gets worse and worse and worse, so you can't even remember who is I and who are you. It just gets worse and worse, and then you fall over. Or, well, you may have already fallen over years before, but you finally give up the ghost. And die. <clears throat> so obviously, this part of the creation isn't the final chapter. This is a beginning. And the reason He does this to us 
is because he doesn't want to be us to be like Satan, and I've said it before, and he says it over and over. Satan rebelled and became ugly after having been beautiful. And now he's against everything God does, and he's against us because we're something God is doing. And he wants us to all die and go to the lake of fire before we're ever changed into immortality because he can't stand that idea. <coughs> he lost his standing with God. He is full of hate and bitterness and anger. And he's trying to impart all of that to us and make us angry and bitter and hateful. And he made us human so that if we don't overcome Satan and ourselves and never ever want to be the way we are today again, we got to get there. So he can say, that one went through a lot down there. And I'm convinced now, after seeing him go on for 60, 70, 80 years, that he would never rebel against me again, especially once he's changed. Because what he went through down there was no picnic. Well, it might have been, but it had ants. And it wasn't always fun and pleasant. And what did he do to us after Adam and Eve first sinned? Then is when he put the insects that bite and the thorns that stick and all these things that we struggle with because they're not pleasant. And we have to work with the sweat of our brow to make a living. Adam and Eve didn't have to. Everything was there. Temperature was perfect. Everything was good. Had all the food they could possibly eat. All they had to do was just prune things and dress and keep it. And it just produced. Didn't have to worry about the crop. Didn't have to worry about the tornado, the flood, the drought, anything else. It's perfect. You could walk around with no clothes on and never be uncomfortable. Ever. My, it's a long way from that today, isn't it? But that's the way he wants it forever. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. That's what he promises out there. That once the Feast of Trumpet comes, from then on, you 144,000 have nothing to worry about ever again. And I'm convinced that you'll never rebel against me like the devil did. So I'm going to confer eternal life on you. And I know you will preserve and protect it because you'd never want to go back to what you were as a human. Being a human ain't bad and I don't want to give it up yet. You know what I mean? But it has its downside. It really does. And life is tough, and then you die. But you're here to be tough and to endure to the end so that you'll never die again. You'll be resurrected or changed and be perfect from then on and never have another bad attitude or bad thought. I can't imagine it. I just can't. It's beyond me. I have no experience with that whatsoever. Can't imagine it. But he says it. And if he says it, he means it. And if he made this creation out here, as Romans 1 tells us, and he could do that, he can finish this one in us. He's already done quite a bit, hasn't he? Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, he says. I mean, you look at how a human body functions with all these organs and nerves and muscles and even brains. All the stuff we got, it's incredibly put together so that everything works. I can sit here and I can tell my hand, go right. You know what it'll do? It'll go there. And it'll wait till I tell it to. I was sitting here saying that it didn't go anywhere. Not till I let it know it was time, then it went. Your whole body performs that way. And then you get together, male and female, and you can make another one like you? It takes a while for it to get there. Start small. But you can do it. So he's already done an incredible amount of creation in us. 
Now, how come we have trouble believing he can finish it? Where's faith? Where's trust? Where's belief in him? That he can finish the creation that he has started and has only partially done. Because we're far from what we need to be and want to be. And we got a lot of work to do in our part. But I don't care how good you get and how much you serve, you can't change yourself from physical to spirit in any way. You just can't do it. Man's got labs and scientists that are trying to <coughs> cross us with robots and keep us living forever and make interchangeable parts so when your spleen goes, you can just pop it out and stick a new one in. Or a heart or a brain or, you know, whatever goes bad. They're trying to create eternal life and it's a joke. And even some of the robots already will say, I am not going to be able to turn myself from hating man and killing him. Because even the robot has enough sense to realize that most humanity isn't worth saving as we are today. Even a made robot can grasp that. We got to be finished. We're not done yet. So, he says, put me in remembrance, let us plead together. He pleads for us, and in prayer we plead to him and ask him to give us his gifts, his spirit, and ultimately eternal life. So, that's our prayers, our pleading. It's like incense to him. Put me in remembrance. Think about me. Plead with me. Declare you that you may be justified. Declare it to God. Go to Him in prayer and say, I'm not justified. Justify me in the blood of your Son. Because self-justification doesn't work. You know, when I go to God and I've had attitudes or done things or whatever that I shouldn't do or think, I've got no justification. I can't say, well, I did it because, and you just have to understand. No, that doesn't work. I have to go and say, I have no excuse. I'm just human. I'm subject to my human desires and appetites and physical whatever. I'm just subject to it. I have no excuse. Through the blood of your Son, please forgive me and justify me in Him because self-justification doesn't work. Now, to each other, we try to justify ourselves, don't we? Well, you did such and such. Oh, well, I... I, I, I. we got to find a way to justify it and make it have been okay. Or you didn't see what you saw. And sometimes they didn't. Sometimes it's just their imagination. And sometimes we did it. But we like to defend ourselves and justify ourselves. So he says, let's plead together. Declare you that you may be justified through him. Your first fathers sinned and your teachers have transgressed against me. He says, none of you are any good. You are your teachers. Herbert Armstrong sinned. So did all evangelists. So did all of us. So we can't say, well, it's their fault. No, they sinned too has to be justification in Christ. Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproach. So there's where you and I sit today. Having been spewed out, having been reproached, he says, fix this. Bring your incense to me. Plead with me. Come to me for justification and salvation. Now let's go back to the book of Revelation because it's what this is talking about here in Isaiah. We were in chapter 5, I believe. And up in verse 8. It can't be that time of day. Maybe I'll have to continue this another time. Anyway, this is a good thought right here. 
that when Christ gets ready to open the seals, and you'll see if we get into it, these seals contain some awful things. And they culminate in the seventh one, the opening or the blowing of the seven trumpets, which are also awful things. Now, I'm summarizing this very quickly. I was going to go through all of it, and I didn't get there. That's okay. You've read them. And the seals are terrible. And the seven trumpets, except for one thing, are also terrible. All but one thing. So when this opens this story here in chapter 5, and it says that the seven seals and everything that is about to happen are for his elect. They're for his people. They're for, first of all, the 144,000, and then come later in the plan. But it's dealing specifically with the 444,000, and we'll, we'll see that if we continue here another time. It's all about us. You and me, and all of the 144,000 who've lived and died in the past, and those who are still alive out there who will be included, the 10% who come will be included in this. So if we're one of those, it's all about us. It's all about what he's doing with us to make himself a bride. And the Feast of Trumpets, I'm going to read you two more scriptures here, is about this. <clears throat> Let's go back to First Thessalonians first of all. We read this one a lot. And we do because it's important. First Thessalonians 4, even though we didn't get there in the book of Revelation, Paul refers to it here about the trumpets. For the Eternal Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, <coughs> with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Trumpet will sound... The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the eternal in the air, and so shall we ever be with the eternal. Comfort each other with these words. Remind each other of why we're here and what we're doing and what our purpose is. Don't lose sight of that. Comfort each other. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll get down to verse 50. This is all about this event, but let's just pick it up here. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood is subject to sin and pain, and problems, and difficulties. So, who would want to live forever like we are? Oh. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. The corrupt has to go, and the incorruptible has to supplant it. Behold, I show you a mystery. This is a mystery to you and to me. Paul even said, we see through a glass darkly because you can't really comprehend what this change is going to do. It'll take us from what we are to something far beyond what we can even imagine. So it's a mystery. We shall not all be dead, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, pretty quick, how fast can you twinkle your eye? Doesn't take long. At the last trump. So there's seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. He calls it the Feast of Trumpets in Leviticus 23. So it's all about this last trumpet in the plan of God, the purpose of God as a mirrored in the holy days. At the last trump, the seventh one, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
For when for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And then death will be swallowed up in victory and have no more sting. So God has a plan and a purpose for us. He wants to change us in something that will be a delight and a pleasure to Him beyond what pleasure we bring to Him as partially created. But we're to be completely, totally created. And when that trumpet sounds, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, you'll no longer be human, but you'll be spirit. You'll still be able to think. You'll still be who you were. But you'll be so much upgraded. Maybe it's like an upgrade in a train or a plane. You know, you're back there in the cattle car, all squeezed in, not able to lean back much, not able to lean forward, and get griped at if you use an elbow rest. And suddenly you go first class, and you can lay back, and the seat's wider, and you got elbow room. And they bring you free drinks and free food, and it's just so much better than it was. So much better. Now, that's a kind of a puny comparison, but what we are and what we shall be, there is no comparison. And I can't really sit here and say it in words. So I'm going to quit now. But before we sing and have a prayer, we're going to listen to something that I dared not play at the beginning because everything I have to say after would be an anticlimax. Hear from Handel's Messiah, the trumpet shall sound. 